turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to get some momentum back. If you need a Bible, wave at your friend Bud. I missed you last week. Um, but God works things out for good. Pastor Steve down in Elk Falls, who, by the way, asked me to send his heartfelt appreciation for freeing me up to, to be down there. Um, he asked me back in the, in the summer. We were at a conference together, and I was teaching, and he, he grabbed me afterwards, and he said, would you share that same message in my congregation before the end of the year? And I said, yes. And then I kind of regretted it because I already had some other guest teaching scheduled, and I try not to be out of the pulpit too much, but man keeps his word even to its detriment. And so I, I, I kept saying not yet and not yet. Well, last week I was, I was sick, like a lot of us have been, and, and you know, fuzzy brain and couldn't study. And I said, you know, this actually will work. I can go and I can keep my promise to Steve, and I can share a message that, that I've really already internalized. So... God works things out, but it's good to be, it was good to be there. Um, it, uh, what a sweet fellowship, but also a blessing to be back and try to get some momentum before Christmas. Um, I'm looking forward to Christmas. Rob mentioned Sunday morning, Christmas Eve. Uh, I'm going to teach a, a message that the Lord has laid on my heart about the gospel according to Joseph. We don't know a lot about Jesus' adopted father from Scripture, but what we do know actually paints a pretty cool picture of the gospel. Joseph, in a way, actually typifies or personifies the gospel that his adopted son Jesus came to fulfill. So we're going to talk about that on Christmas Eve morning, and then Christmas Eve Eve? Or would that be, no, sun, Sunday evening, whatever, it, the night before Christmas, I think is what we're calling it. Um, we're, we're basically going to do a carol sing, uh, maybe even carols and candles if we get really crazy. But then the Friday after Christmas, if things come together, there are still some approvals that need to be approved and, 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 and so forth, but we're hoping to be back at Fairmount if, if the parent ministry there signs off leading a, another night of praise that, that Hector and Anouk um, and Abby and others have, have titled Room. It's, it's the Room ministry. And it's a night of praise, but it's different than what we're used to when we gather here. When we come together on a Wednesday or uh, whenever we, we have a, an evening of worship, our assumption, our presupposition is generally that we know and we're familiar with and we're comfortable with the God that we're praising. We're, we're on the same page about God who called us, uh, well, created us and, and, and then called us, drew us redeemed us through his son and dwelt us through his spirit. We're on the same page. That's who we're worshiping. Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. We know him and we're praising them and we're mostly on the same page about what it means to do that. Room has a slightly different vision. It's entitled, intended to be a little bit different. When Hector introduced the ministry, when he shared a little bit a, a few weeks ago with us, he said that it was intended for worshipers, but also for wanderers and wanderers. Wanderers, I might have said seekers, people wondering about God, seeking after God, but who haven't found him or at least haven't surrendered to him, haven't opened their hearts to him. And then that third category, wanderers, just like it sounds, people who maybe grew up in church, they had or thought they had a relationship with Jesus, but for one reason or another, they've wandered. They've walked away. They've wandered from their faith. 
or, or as Hector expressed it a few weeks ago, they're possibly in the process of deconstructing their faith. And when he used that term a few weeks ago, a few people said, yeah, that makes sense. And a few more people said, say what now? I mean, the word sounds straightforward enough, even if we've never encountered it. Deconstruction. Okay, if construction is building up and putting things together, deconstruction must be unbuilding and taking things apart. But what does that mean in the context of our Christian faith? It turns out to be an important question because a lot, a lot, a lot of people are writing about it and talking about it and posting about it and dedicating websites to it. And a lot of people are pursuing it, even within our own fellowship. Now, what's cause and what's effect? Are people pursuing it because people are writing about it or are people writing about it because people are doing it? I think it goes both ways. The more people who are actively engaged in this deconstruction process, well, the more that people are going to talk about it and write about it. And the more popularized the concept becomes and the more space on the interwebs that's devoted to it, the more people are going to feel emboldened and encouraged, whatever the right word is, to investigate or participate themselves. All of which is great, but I still haven't really defined the term, have I? I've been talking about deconstruction for five minutes, and okay, Pat, what does it mean, Patrick? Does it mean anything? Or is it just one of those made-up words? This morning gives us actually a really good framework to explore that question, to explore this topic. If, if you turn to Ephesians 1, Paul, obviously without intending to, is going to do a, a really nice job of teeing up a conversation about deconstruction. We're going to read our passage, we're going to talk about it, and then we're going to get into the origin and a definition of deconstruction, some of the causation behind it, and what our response to it should be. But let's start at the start. Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll back up to verse 3 because we've been away for a week. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. That was two weeks ago. Now we'll read our text this morning. <clears throat> in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Better translation, perhaps, wisdom and insight. Having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory." And if you recall from a couple of weeks ago, that's all one sentence. In the original Greek, starting at verse 3, going all the way to verse 14, that's just one compound run-on convoluted sentence. 
But there's a reason for that. Because if we step back and look at everything that Paul just said in that sentence, he just laid out a summary of our Christian faith. What does this have to do with deconstruction, Patrick? Before we unbuild something, we first have to build it, right? The, if we're going to disassemble something, that implies that it has been assembled. And Paul just assembled not every doctrine, not every subtlety and nuance and implication of Christianity, but the essentials, they're all there, aren't they? Paul just articulated in one fat sentence the foundation of our Christian faith. Verse 7, we'll start with the part that we didn't cover two weeks ago. Jesus is our Redeemer. That's at the core of our faith. We were lost in our sin, would have been swallowed up in guilt forever, except Jesus' blood redeemed us, paid for us, ransomed us, paid the price our crime demanded. Why? How? Answer to both questions, verse 7, grace. What's the acronym? God's riches at Christ's expense. God paid Paul says, according to his riches, not out of his riches, because that sounds like God's just digging in his pockets for spare change, but according to his riches. He paid a price that only someone with his riches could pay. A price that even for the God of the universe was costly. He paid. What did he get in return? Our forgiveness. Our sin wiped out. It's as, in God's eyes, it's as if it never happened. God paid with Jesus' blood, to lavish that gift on us, the gift of forgiveness, verse 7, and on top of that, wait, there's more, verse 8, the gifts of wisdom and prudence, wisdom and, I would say, insight. What Paul is saying, verse 9, God not only saved us, but he told us the story about it. He revealed his whole plan of salvation to us. He, he, he opened up his heart. He let us in on a secret. He shared with us a mystery. And we know that that's a technical term. A mystery is something that is lurking in the Old Testament concealed that now we see in the New Testament revealed. What's the mystery Paul's talking about? The cross of Jesus Christ. And the fact that for his good pleasure, verse 9, before time, before creation, before Adam and Eve sinned, before, before humanity even was, God planned to love us. God decided, Father, Son, and Spirit got together, they had a family council, and they determined that they would pay the price in themselves to save us. I sometimes wonder, and I've talked about this before, if God perhaps did that, if, if he conceived of creation and the cross in response to Satan. Satan, who back when he was known as Lucifer, was the chief among all of the angels, was the worship leader in the heavenlies, got so puffed up and impressed by his standing, he got confused about who he was and who God was and started spouting off saying things like, I can be like the Most High. Rebelled against God, convinced a third of the angels to go with him. And I sometimes wonder if, if, if this creation and the cross that redeemed this creation, the cross that redeemed us, might be at least in part God's reply to Satan, God asking Satan. So you can be like the most, you can, you can be like me. Okay, can you do this? Can you breathe a universe into existence knowing that 
the people you create are going to fall and rebel against you and knowing that you're going to sacrifice yourself to save them. Would you do that, Satan? Would you sacrifice yourself for the sake of others? For the sake of your enemies? That's speculation, obviously. Whether that has anything to do with creation or the cross, Paul reminds us the two go together. He reminds us in verse 1 and verse 5, and he reminds us again in verse 9, and he's going to tell us a fourth time in verse 11. God created us with the cross already in mind. God created us knowing how it would play out, knowing we would fall, knowing he would offer to save us, knowing what that offer would cost, knowing the price he would pay to extend that offer of salvation. So that, verse 10, those who accept that offer of salvation, those who receive the forgiveness that Jesus purchased, would one day be gathered unto him, shepherded by him, praising only him. Gathered unto him, verse 11, lurking there is the idea that gathered unto him will be both Jew and Gentile. It doesn't jump off the page, but verse 11, Paul says, we also, he's talking about we Jewish believers. We from Israel, who were the first to hear and the first to respond, the first to trust in Christ, will be together in the church, not many, but not none, and together in the kingdom, we, Paul says, will be gathered, verse 13, with you also, with Gentiles, that Jesus also died to save from their idolatrous ways. How? Same answer for Jew and Gentile, verse 12. Sorry, verse 13. How are we saved? Same answer for Jew and Gentile, by hearing the gospel, by believing on Jesus, by receiving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who not only indwells us, but seals us, verse 14, marks us as God's people, promises us that the best is yet to come, that the riches of Christ's inheritance are waiting for us when we stand before him in glory. And one more time, why? Why does God do this? Why did Jesus die for us? Why does he bless us? Why did he adopt us? Why, why is God looking forward to spending eternity with us? Verse 14, for the praise of his glory. He's already said it twice. He said it in verse 6. He says it in verse 12. Third time's the charm, verse 14. Paul says it again and again. And I don't think he says it again and again because he thinks that we're going to forget. I don't think that Paul is worried that we're going to miss it. I think he's just overwhelmed. I think that he's, he's, he's living what he's teaching. God, God, God did what he did, and he did it. For him, he did it for the praise of his glory. Paul's just living that. He's, 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 he's saying how great is our God and how good is our God and how loving and kind and gracious and merciful is our God when we were yet sinners, when we were deceivers and deniers and defiers and enemies of every kind, Christ died for us. And, and, and so, so there we, we have it in a single sentence. Verse 3 to verse 14. We've got most, not all, but most of, 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 of the essentials that make Christianity what it is. We, we've got the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We've got creation and election and redemption. We've got God's purpose and plan and all of it. And we've got the past and present and future tenses of salvation. We've got the gospel of grace. So where does deconstruction come in? <clears throat> Let's start by, by talking about where it comes from. If you're taking notes, here's point number one, deconstruction's origin story. And, and, and it's, it's, it's pretty simple. It started in the 1960s in the field of literary criticism. 
And in, in, in its original context, the idea was to take what an author said and dissect it. Take it apart, analyze every word and, and what words are next to what words and what words mean to try to arrive at the author's truth. Because the presupposition is there's no absolute truth, there's just that author's truth, and we're going to take apart what he says to arrive at it. Now, since then, the term has been applied more broadly. And here's number two in, in your outline. Here's a definition, a working definition. It refers to the process of taking apart a belief system, examining it piece by piece with the intention, with the stated intention, of repairing or replacing or eliminating the parts that are obsolete or broken or worn out or, or dysfunctional with the intent, theoretically, of putting the structure back together into something stronger, more coherent, more, more useful, more insightful, more productive. That's a, that's a working definition. Taking a belief system apart, dealing with the parts that are broken or worn out or obsolete, and then putting it back together in something that's truer and stronger, more cohesive, more productive. And that's still a pretty broad definition, but it kind of has to be. I googled Christian deconstruction this morning and came up with 6.2 million results. That's a whole lot of people talking about it, and they don't all agree in what they're talking about. They're not all using the term the same way. A lot of people, for example, assume that deconstruction is by definition negative. Deconstruction, bad. One website that I looked at, a website that, that, that I mostly respect and I point people to a lot, said deconstruction could more properly be termed demolition. Which, which is just not true. Because it flies in the face of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5.21, Paul tells us to do what? Test all things and hold fast to the parts that are good. Luke, Acts 17.11, says, Receive the word with all readiness of mind, but then search the Scriptures and see whether these things be so. So in that sense, a certain amount of deconstruction is, is good, is helpful, it's healthy, it's positive, it's necessary. Here's Roman numeral three, if you're taking notes. The, the positive deconstruction or constructive, productive deconstruction. Separates what's true from what's untrue. Separates what's doctrinal from what's just cultural or traditional. Separates what's traditional from what's biblical. And, and, and we do that on an ongoing basis. We should do that on an ongoing basis. I, I, I tell the story about when, when Ann first joined me um, at my home church in New Jersey. She was there a few weeks. She was taking a class. It was like intro to, to serving at the church. And, and it was a two-hour class, and in the middle of it, there was a break, and, and the pastor teaching it said, hey, there's a lady with a flat tire in the parking lot, and you know, if anyone wants to help her change that tire, then she could get home right after the class. And so my wife, who has changed many a tire in her day, goes out to change the tire or to teach her how to change the tire. And people were scandalized. A woman changing a tire? <laughs> Anne comes home and she says, okay, just, I thought that Titus chapter 2 says that the older women are supposed to teach the younger women. Where did I get this wrong? I said, you didn't get it wrong. This isn't a biblical thing, it's a cultural thing. Because our church was heavily Italian-American, and it was Dominican-American, and it was Puerto Rican-American, and there were lots of very men are men and women better, and there, was, there were some cultural elements. Cultural, not biblical. And we need to know which is which. Um, 
years ago, I'm trying to think how many years ago, maybe eight, eight, nine, ten years ago, um, Pastor James and Pastor Josh came to me and said, you are slowly killing the youth of our church. Because, because I had it in my mind that high school students needed to sit in the sanctuary and listen to me teach for 45 minutes, and they needed to learn to, to, to chew meat. And, and they pointed out a lot of the youth that we had in the church at the time weren't ready to chew meat. They needed milk, and they needed milk warmed up and maybe with a, a little bit of sugar and vanilla in it. <laughs> or they weren't going to continue coming back. And so, so I had to deconstruct my idea about what church for high school students was supposed to be and, 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 and realize that the Bible accommodates, hey, we can, we can learn the scripture by dialoguing through it as, as well as just being, being taught at. Juan, who was in youth at the time, he's now uh, an assistant pastor in Utah. He talked to me this year about how moving to Utah, he's had to deconstruct his idea of Sunday morning. Because Sunday morning growing up in this church meant chewing meat. You know, Calvary Chapel, where the sheep eat meat. But in his context, where they're ministering, um, most of their fellowship are coming out of um, LDS. They're, they're, they're former Mormons. And, and so getting into prophecy is problematic because it's our prophecy versus your prophecy. And, and getting into holiness, which is something that I, I camp out on, not never, is, is likewise maybe not the, the best way to spend a lot of Sunday morning time because they're coming out of Mormonism, which is all about legalism. And, and, and so what he's had to recognize is, you know what, God, God's call for Sunday morning accommodates uh, different kinds of worship and it, and it can accommodate an emphasis on Christian liberty as opposed to holiness or as opposed to the deep things of Scripture, because the Mormons already have enough deep things. So he's had to deconstruct his idea about Sunday morning. 2020, those of us who were here in 2020, we had to deconstruct a little bit what, what we thought about politics, because we found ourselves saying things like, well, if, if you're a Christian, you have to vote this way. You're not a Christian if you don't vote that way. And, and we realized, wait a minute, we're confusing two kingdoms. Yeah, we're, we're, we're in, in the kingdom of heaven and we're on the kingdom of earth and we have dual citizenship, but they're not the same. And we need to separate what's political from what's biblical. Mars Hill, a lot of you listen to the Rise and Fall of Mars Hill podcast. And the takeaway from that was to again learn that we have to deconstruct this idea of, of pastoral authority. The pastor is sacrosanct and his word is just south of the Lord's word and don't touch the Lord's anointed. Paul Tripp, who, who, who you know I respect deeply, said this at, at the end of the podcast. He said, we should all be deconstructing our faith. We better do it because our faith becomes a culture, a culture so webbed into the purity of truth that it's hard to separate the two. And we better do some deconstructing, or we're going to find ourselves again and again in these same sad places. Pastor Paul was not suggesting that we reconsider what Paul was talking about this morning in the book of Ephesians. He's not proposing that, that, that we re-examine or do away with any, any sound biblical doctrine. He's saying, hey, we've got to differentiate between what's biblical and what's cultural. We've got to differentiate between the two, and we have to potentially eliminate those cultural practices those traditional customs that are outdated, unhelpful, dysfunctional, harmful. 
Because when we do, we'll be left with a stronger faith. When we do, we'll have more emphasis on Jesus and his word because we've cleaned out the stuff that's competing with him. We've gotten rid of the stuff that isn't Jesus and doesn't accord with his word. Long story less long, deconstruction can be helpful. But people who are waving caution flags on the subject aren't pointing at nothing. Here's Roman numeral 4. Let's talk about unproductive or destructive deconstruction. Deconstruction can be helpful if it leads to reconstruction with parts that are stronger, truer, more faithful to Scripture. And it doesn't always end up that way. Sometimes, sometimes with the best of intentions, what the, the, it starts with dissection and then it just ends with rejection. And the parts, uh, the, the elements, the, the entire concept laying in pieces on the floor. And, and instead, of, instead of a healthy and constructive process of asking, okay, I was taught this, I was told this, this was modeled for me, but, but is it true? And then scrutinizing and analyzing to determine the answer. Some people just skip the scrutinizing part. They dispense with the investigating part. And they say, I was taught this, I was told this, I saw this growing up. It can't be true. If anybody taught it to me, it's not authentic to me. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous, yeah, but it's dangerous because that's not how truth works. Things don't become true just because somebody very passionately and articulately defends them. Things aren't true just because somebody is really jazzed about them, but things don't become false based on the character of the teacher or the culture of the classroom. The character of the teacher and the culture of the classroom can't take something true and untrue it. But that's the sort of logic that's leading more and more people down a road of deconstruction that's destructive rather than productive, the kind that takes them away from the faith that they grew up with and rather than replacing it with something stronger, better, something that they actually own for themselves, it takes them away and leaves them with nothing in its place. Or, or it, takes, it takes them away, strips it for parts, and then rebuilds it in a way that lacks all of the essential doctrine Paul talked to us about this morning the core tenets of, of Christianity that he just expounded, those get left behind. Not because they're not true, but because they're adjacent or, or associated with something that's not true. It's, it's guilt by association. It's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And so what you end up with is, is an empty shell, like, like a, the casing of an engine that doesn't have a motor or pistons inside of it. It's got the form, but no power. Why does this happen? This is number five, by the way, reasons for deconstruction. And, and you know, why does anything happen? Nothing happens for one reason. Everything happens for lots of reasons. But, but the first on a long list of reasons is probably bad teachers. Why do people go down the road of decon destructive deconstruction? I think, I think topping the list is bad teaching. Teaching that misrepresents God, that says that God is angry, that God plays favorites, that God hates certain people, can't forgive certain sins, and gets really, really mad when you question them or doubt them. Bad teaching, bad teachers might be the number one cause of deconstruction. 
Because, because you, you can see how that happens. Bad teaching, enough of it, for long enough can lead somebody to say, well, the, the all teaching. All teaching is bad. And, 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 and you, we wish it wasn't that way, but you can see why it is. You can see how somebody can get there. And, and, and you can see how somebody goes from there to, okay, I don't want to deal with bad teaching, so I'm just going to avoid all teaching. And so there's no truth and there's no authority and there's no real frame of reference for good or bad and right and wrong. There's just what I think. Which is, which is, which is unfortunate and it's unnecessary. Because the remedy for bad theology is not no theology. The remedy for, for bad theology is also not everyone for themselves theology. The ready, remedy for bad theology is biblical theology. is good theology. is true theology. The doctrine that the Bible actually teaches, the kind of things that Paul this morning articulates. Jesus models this for us. Jesus with Satan in the desert. He's out in the wilderness three times. Satan says, well, you know, Jay, the Bible says. And three times Jesus says, oh, gosh. Well, then I shouldn't use the Bible as my authority. Wrong. Three times Satan says, well, you know what the Bible says. And three times Jesus says, no, 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 that's not what the Bible says. That's not, it actually says this. Jesus didn't reject the source of Satan's bad teaching. He went back to the source and said, let's get this right. If we're going to quote the word of God, let's, let's actually understand what it says. He, he does the same thing, Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount, what's Jesus' refrain again and again and again? You've heard it said, but that isn't right. I say this, which is true and right. Going back to the Word of God to correct how people had warped it, twisted it, misapplied it. Jesus doesn't respond by lies to, to lies by saying, well, I guess there's no truth. He responds to lies by going to the truth and saying this is what's true. Here's another source of destructive deconstruction. Church hurt. We're, we're still in, 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 in Roman numeral five. We're just in number two under it. Church hurt. If bad teaching was number one, church hurt's number two. And, and, and could be number one for all I know. Because church hurt happens and it happens in many forms. It can be personal. A pastor, a leader, a mentor wounds me. It can be institutional. There's a dispute over something. The music, or who's making decisions, or whether we're going to have flowers on the table for the women's Christmas brunch. And how those disputes are handled, and, and what the outcome is. Is there bitterness? Is there division? Is there a church split? That kind of stuff can call into question anything I'd ever learned in that community about love, which by extension calls into question everything I know about God, because God is love. Church hurt can happen. It can be personal. It can be institutional. It can happen through pastors that are, are, are just inspirational to me. Church hurt can happen from someone I don't even know. But, but someone that I've, I've read, I've watched, I've listened to, someone that from a distance has helped mold me or shape me or inspire me. When that person's failing is revealed, think Mark Driscoll, think Ravi Zacharias, think from our tribe, Bob Coy. What question does that evoke? What else don't I know? What else isn't true? What else is a lie? And that happens. 
All three of those things happen. Church hurt is real. Pretending it's not real is a lie, but, but here's the thing. Dealing with it by abandoning God in the Bible is trading one lie for another lie. The right response to church hurt isn't running away from God or the Word of God or the people of God. The right response to church hurt is actively seeking and building stronger, better, godlier communities, healthy communities, based on the truth of God that have Jesus in the middle and not a person or a personality or institution. One more. One more root of negative deconstruction, unproductive deconstruction, cause number three, conflict. For some people, truth stops being true when a competing truth becomes more compelling. When something that I believe is in conflict with something that I want to believe more, like what? Like sin. Dear friend back in New Jersey whose journey of deconstruction began during his struggle with sexual addiction at a low point in his life when he was really struggling to lay hold of the promises of God, someone rolled up on him and said, what if you didn't have to struggle? What if you weren't supposed to struggle? What if what you're struggling against isn't sin at all, but it's just the way that God made you, and what you're struggling against is the very thing that God wants to use to bless you? And the next thing I know, he had taken his faith apart and put it back together, except that there was nothing left that the Bible taught about marriage or sex or intimacy. That was all in pieces on the floor. And that sort of thing happens all the time. That scenario plays out again and again. When the, when the Bible disagrees with, with our flesh, when the truth of the word wars with our flesh, and someone tells us, hey, it's okay to ignore what the Bible says, well, then the conflict goes away. Just rewrite the Bible or reinterpret the Bible enough and no more pain. That happens when the Bible conflicts with our flesh. It happens when the Bible conflicts with the world. When the world in the person of our friends, our family, our spouse, our co-workers says, oh, the Bible's outdated. It doesn't reflect the times. The Bible is ignorant. It doesn't align with science. The Bible is arbitrary. What about all the books that were left out? The Bible is untrustworthy. Who do we know that was translating this? And we want those people to like us. Maybe we want those people to date us. We want them to respect us. We want them to approve us. And this conflict keeps getting in the way. And it's easier to just say, I, yeah, I mean, maybe, I don't know. Could be. And shrug it off. It's easier to give up, to give in, than it is to hang in and hang on to what's true. And it's true not because somebody said that it's true. It's not true because we want it to be true. It's not true because we grew up thinking or being told that it's true. It's true because it's true. And that's hard. Deconstruction is appealing in the face of conflict because it alleviates tension. Opposition from without, opposition from within. It, it alleviates the tension. It probably even rewards us. Because if I ignore the truth, I get to satisfy my flesh and I get to tamp down my insecurities. The problem is, that's the road to destruction. And once I start down that road, no matter how good my intentions are, there's a good chance I'm going to end up with my faith in pieces on the floor. Because if my way of dealing with conflict is to pretend not to see it, if I deal with conflict by ignoring it or trying to wish it away, well, then what's left? 
not truth. Because truth, by definition, creates conflict. If something is true, then by definition, that requires anything in opposition to that truth to be false. If X is 2, X isn't 3. If the sky is blue, the sky isn't brown. If the Bible is true, if Paul knows what he's talking about this morning, if Jesus redeems lost sinners like us, then anything contrary to that is not true. And there's only two ways out of that dilemma. One is to decide, well, no, I don't think the Bible is true because it's inconvenient, because I don't want it to be. It's easier if it's not. Or to decide that nothing's true because that eliminates all conflict. You're okay, I'm okay, we're all okay. As long as we're being authentic to our own selves. Authenticity, by the way, 2023's word of the year. Not making that up. Thing is, they're both cop outs. In the long run, either of those options is going to leave me unsatisfied because the truth is still out there. Yeah, I just quoted X Files. I don't know. <laughs> but the truth is out there. It's oper- the truth is operative in the universe, whether I acknowledge it or not. And the right way to deal with it is to run toward it, not away from it. The right way to deal with it is is not to ignore it or put my head in the sand and and, and wait for it to go away. The remedy for bad teaching is not no teaching, it's good teaching. The remedy for bad community is not no community, it's not Lone Ranger Christianity, it's good community. The remedy for conflict is not ignoring conflict or giving in to conflict. The remedy for conflict is knowing and trusting what's true and not trading away the peace and joy that are my birthright as a born-again believer for a bowl of stew, for, for, for momentary satisfaction of my flesh, or the temporary admiration of people. The remedy for conflict is confidence in the truth. It might not make the conflict go away, but it'll change completely how I experience it. See, the way to respond to questions is with answers. Here's what's true. Here's how I know. Here's here's what it means. Here's here's what I should do with it. And sometimes that takes some work. Sometimes that takes some digging. Usually that takes some time. Which means all of us, those who are actively engaged in deconstruction and those of us who love them, need to be patient with the process. It's tempting if we think we have the answers, to try to rush other people along to the answers. Push them. You know, there's good answers and just, just, just believe them, will you? We need to have patience with the process. We need to have conversations and work through the questions and, and, and not expect people or ask people or let people settle for read your Bible, pray every day kind of solutions. Here's number six. This is where we'll wrap up this morning. Here, this is our response. Deconstruction begins most often with someone realizing or suspecting that some of what they learned and believed, some of what they were taught, some of what they saw, no longer seems right. What's the fastest way to confirm that suspicion? Shh! Don't ask questions. Don't, don't, don't make things awkward. Don't dishonor God with your lack of faith, and don't touch the Lord's anointed. Okay, what's that going to do? 
That's going to encourage someone to walk away from the questions altogether. What's the more productive way of dealing with doubt? What's a way to help ensure that deconstruction stays productive rather than destructive? Run toward it. Welcome it and embrace it. And walk with people in it. Deconstruction is just a a, a new word for, for an ancient condition, older than the church. Deconstruction is the modern way of labeling what David went through again and again in Psalms, right? Why, O oh Lord? How does this make sense, Lord? How long will this go on, Lord? And before David, it was Moses. And before Moses, it was Abraham. And before Abraham, it was Job. All asking, okay, how, God, how, how is what I'm seeing and hearing, how is what I'm experiencing, how does that reconcile with what I've been told I should be believing? And what did God do with each of them? David, Moses, Abraham, Job. He listened. Now what happened next was kind of person to person, even conversation to conversation. Sometimes God responded with tenderness, sometimes with with toughness. But every time he started, how? With patience. God listened. And we need to listen. Most people walking down the road of deconstruction are scared or hurting or both. And maybe they know why and maybe they don't and maybe they think they do and they're wrong. But something they thought was solid is now shaky or sketchy or gone. And the right response isn't callousness, it's compassion. You know, we talked about biblical figures, talk, modern, modern figures. Martin Luther, John Wesley, Francis Schaeffer, all worked through deconstruction. They didn't call it that. They called it crisis of faith or or, or something else. Schaeffer, when he writes about it, he says it was like being torn to bits. Well, where where would we be if people told Martin Luther, just get over it, will you, Marty? (laughs) If they said to Wesley, grow up and stop talking about all of this Holy Ghost stuff. Where would we be as a tribe if, if when Chuck Smith was, was deconstructing what he had been taught in the denomination he grew up in about what church was supposed to be and church culture and church leadership? What if they said to him, Chuck, it's serious. And enough with the hippy-dippy stuff. <laughs> I mean, in reality, there were people who said all of those things and much worse things to all of those guys. I guess the real question is where would we be if they listened And what do we want to be saying to the people in our lives? You know, go back to Job. Job Job is having a crisis of faith to end all crises, right? He already had a wife saying to him, curse God and die. He already had friends saying to him, Job, it's your fault. And he had other friends saying to him, how dare you question the Holy One? How did Job's crisis resolve? It resolved after God patiently listened. Book of Job goes on for like forever, right? You're reading Job and like, how much longer are you going to lament? And, 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 and God let him get it all out. He endured Job's lament. He didn't jump in and correct everything that Job got wrong because he got a lot of things wrong. He let Job talk it through, and then he graciously, 
firmly but compassionately pointed Job back to the truth. Job, I know that's how you feel. I know that's how it seems. But let's go back to what is true. And let's go back to how we know it's true and why you should rationally, reasonably believe it's true. He, he did that in a way that Job could receive. He did it in a way that Job could understand and respond to and walk in. What did Jesus do? Here's the gospel. Figure it out. I'll be in heaven when you're done. No, he came, walked with us, talked with us, unpacked hard stuff, sorted it out, endured the disciples being all kinds of dopey, and worked through it with them. And because he did, Paul could say, verse 7 as we wrap up, because he did, Paul could say with confidence, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and insight, having made known to us the mystery of his will. Because Jesus had patience, Paul could know that and believe it and share it with utmost confidence. And because Paul did that for us, we can say Jesus did that. When we were sinners, Jesus did that for us. Before creation existed, Jesus decided to do that for us. And our tremendous privilege and unspeakable blessing is to be used of God to speak that wisdom, that insight, to unpack that mystery with others. Jesus, thank you that, that, that you decided to go down this road. Thank you that the fact that we were going to be we are rebels didn't deter you from creating us. Thank you for the gift of life. And thank you that our rebellion fully formed didn't, didn't discourage you, didn't dissuade you from saving us. And thank you that the price wasn't too much. You came as a man and you will forever be a man. Because of the cross today, there is a man seated at the right hand of the Father, bearing the scars of your crucifixion. And you did it gladly for the joy set before you. Jesus, thank you for doing that. Thank you for revealing that, for imparting that. And Lord, thank you for your Holy Spirit that, that empowers us to express that and share that and walk with people who are on their way to that truth or on their way back to the truth.